0: Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 6, The Guinea Pig Club As Germany remilitarized under its new chancellor and fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, coming to power in 1933, Europe sensed the seeds of yet another war were sown. But the first to be conquered were the German people. Within months of coming to power, Hitler was given dictatorial powers under the Enabling Act. That same year, several concentration camps were opened. At first, they were filled with political prisoners only. But that would change. The next year, 1934, saw the Night of the Long Knives, where members of the SA, also known as the Brownshirts, under Ernst Röhm, who threatened Hitler with another revolution that would see him thrown out of power along with other political prisoners, were butchered in their homes in the back alleyways or just taken to an open spot in the woods and murdered. Cruel and shocking as this was, the Nazis were just getting started. In 1935, Hitler abandoned the Versailles Treaty by introducing military conscription. But showing his true hand that same year, all Jews in Germany lost their civil and political rights. Now Hitler started looking outward. In 1936, the Rhineland was remilitarized. This was a clear violation of the Versailles Treaty, and Hitler waited to see what the French and their British allies would do. But nothing happened. Emboldened, Hitler moved on his real plan the expansion of Germany. In 1938, the Anschluss with Austria was completed. In that same year, the Munich Agreement was reached. The following year, 1939, the rest of Czechoslovakia was taken. Also in 1939, Hitler gambled that Britain and France would not move in time to save Poland, and he was right. But against all common sense, at least to Hitler's thinking, the Allies refused to negotiate after Poland was conquered. But with war declared between so many technological and industrial giants, the face of that war has changed. Oh, the men leading troops, or chairing various war committees, thought they understood all these changes. But they didn't. Not really. As the Battle of Britain gets underway, the struggle to see if Hitler and Goering can subdue the defiant island nation. The two most significant changes at the center of the struggle are revealed. The airplane, with its speed and killing power, and therefore its truly untried tactics, and the second, the ability of keeping alive the highly trained pilots after they suffer horrific burns when their fuel tanks are set ablaze by enemy fire. And parallel to this modern battle within a war would be a new dimension. The British people themselves would see and hear much of the struggle, as well as its immediate results. As they watched British and German aircraft, as well as Allied and German pilots, would fall from the sky, the latter suffering various forms of injuries and burns. War was about to come home, in a very real sense, for the people living along the English coast. After the fall of France, more and more planes were flying over England. Some were looking to attack airfields or factories, the others trying to defend the same. And whether each clash ended in victory or defeat... Chances were, a plane would soon be crashing to the ground, and the remains of the pilot or crew would be there for all to see. So the British people quickly came to know the air war. But more than that, they soon specifically knew their own pilots, their own planes, and the enemy's planes as well. But they would also soon come to know the devastating effects of fire on humans. Call it what you will luck, skill, or chance. But even with these altitudes, with bullets flying all around, and the aircraft set alight by their own fuel tanks, some of these pilots were surviving. What to do? Up till now, even with incremental improvements in treating burn victims over the last decade, the response system, if one can even call it that, was minimal. But changes were coming, Response systems would improve during the Battle of Britain, because, simply, they had to. Each country takes care of its own in a time of war. But beyond that, these marred pilots were valued assets. As June turned into July, and then into August, an increasing number of pilots were lost, or out of action, for a period of time. But time was something London did not have. It took too long to properly train a man to learn his machine, learn how to fly, and then learn how to fight with it. If pilots could be saved, they had to be saved. And with that, and again, it could be called luck, fate, chance, or destiny, came Archibald McIndoe. As the RAF organized itself for a long war, McIndoe was picked to be the civilian consultant surgeon in plastic surgery, to the RAF. On paper, this was just one of tens of thousands of decisions made in a time of war. But this one decision would affect an ever increasing number of men and women, fighter and bomber pilots, as the years of the war went by. But not even Mackindo, aka the boss or maestro, could predict what this air war would bring to his Ward 3. He would be in charge of those pilots that fell to the earth, but only after fire had its turn at them. And there were so many unknowables. His job would be to build a response system for these wounded warriors, but even after that, to deal with them once their lives were no longer in danger. And at a cottage hospital in East Grinstead is where he would build and advance this practice. But probably because of the type of person he was, or perhaps because he ended up sharing the trauma these men went through, those who would soon be crowding his Ward 3. McIndoe would go beyond even that. Using his position, strong character, and in some form, his popularity, he would push for the rights of his patients in public. To be honest, no one desires to look on a disfigured human being Especially when the damage has been done by fire, which all humans instinctively fear. But when the altered person themselves reminds everyone of the war and that everyone's future is in doubt, it becomes harder still to accept that person in society and treat them as you would others. After all, the morale of the civilians in this modern war was just as important as those of the warriors. But due to McIndoe's persistence, the men he treated were valued for their hard-fought knowledge and used in wartime Britain. Over time, the men themselves became symbols of Britain's defiance, its persistence, its inability to give in. They would soon be ranked among the Spitfire and Home Guard as symbols of Churchill's words, Never give in. The Royal Air Force created in 1918, was one of the many reactions to World War I. But it was not a knee-jerk reaction. It was considered, thought out, analyzed. The idea was to invest and develop a force that would not only dominate the air, but would allow Britain to attack a country from the air that had attacked it by land or sea. Like the ideas of William Mitchell and Duet, The idea was to be able to attack a country in its entirety, thus sapping it not only of its desire for war, but its very ability to engage in war. By bombing factories, communication, and transport centers, countries would find it difficult to pursue what was quickly becoming a more modern war, at least to our eyes many decades later. Distilling these theories and concepts down to realistic forms, the future protection of Britain would depend on the threat of bombers flying over the enemy's skies and dropping bombs on military and civilian targets alike. Undoubtedly cruel by the concepts of 1918, but then the results would be that the vast majority of the population would go uninjured. And considering the destruction of eastern France, this must have seemed like the most protracted way to conduct any future war. But as this was a new theoretical form of warfare, its emphasis changed during the interwar years. Sometimes the bomber dominated theory waxed, and the fighter defense theory waned, and sometimes they switched roles. But what never wavered was Britain's conviction that air power was to play a major role in the next war. As can be imagined, other countries also saw the benefits, and dangers, of ignoring air power. But Britain not only remained convinced of its importance, but also of its complete picture, as they understood it. Bombers got faster and received thicker armor, but most of that was cancelled out as fighters received more powerful engines. But for the British, these impressive improvements were only parts of the puzzle. That would defend the air over Britain in the next war, another major piece, in some ways the centerpiece, came from what technology had to offer slowly, even clumsily at times. radar was developed to give advanced warning of incoming bombers and As we have covered in previous episodes, a response system was developed around that radar to allow a measured fighter response to those approaching bombers. With this in place, communications and a chain of command was established. Along with this growing intricate system was the RAFMS, or Royal Air Force Medical Service. Its job would be to effectively deal with those crewmen, be they pilots or bomber crew personnel, that fell from the skies or returned injured. So, 20 hospitals were built across the country. Their main job the care of wounded military personnel, and it only made sense to staff them with leading military and civilian medical specialists. But the war that came in September of 1939 did not take into consideration Great Britain's best laid plans. First off, the idea of ending a war through bombing alone, either from Germany's or Britain's point of view, proved all but impossible. That's because bombers from Germany were not sent over alone. The RAF found themselves in an aerial dance of death with at least equivalent or superior German fighters. The bombers would then come in to try to deliver the knockout blow. But another surprise was waiting for those in command and the aerial theorists that came before them. Being able to hit a target while under attack was proving harder than expected. Also, Britain, just like every other modernized country, had spread out its military assets. So even if one place was seriously damaged, it was only a piece of the larger system, which would continue on the next day. So, only a few months into the war, it was clear that all those years of planning for this could not and would not be viable. The order of the day now, and for the foreseeable future, was improvisation. And that went for the pilots, the support crews, their commanders, and of course, the RAF MS. This is where Archibald McIndoe steps into the story. As the appointed civilian consultant in plastic surgery for the RAF, he would find himself, just like everyone else, adapting when something didn't work. And, like everyone else, he found himself journeying into an undiscovered country. As war raged over Central Europe in 1916, the airplane began to change the face of war, but the numerous following aircraft accidents was equally changing the faces and bodies of the pilots. These deaths and near-deaths away from the battlefield dampened the excitement for many, for flying in general, but also in using planes in combat. The aircraft like everything else in battle, had to be reliable. And that came down to the fuel tanks of these relatively flimsy aircraft. By 1916, the British, just like the French, were independently reevaluating this most crucial part of the aircraft. And the answer came relatively quickly to both. Each country decided that some sort of rubber was needed around the fuel tank. Rubber would not only slow down the incoming bullets but perhaps, if manipulated properly, would also expand and seal any holes made. But it was the French who moved forward on this issue in July 1917, when the French Air Services sponsored trials for a non-leaking fuel tank. Using a system created by a Belgium army engineer, Lancer, the French had incendiary ammunition shot at a double holed metal casing, which held a patented rubber compound. The compound gave the surrounding rubber substance and texture. The tests, as far as the French were concerned, were successful. Inexplicably, the British did not hold their own Lancer tests until April of 1918. But even when they did, they were unsatisfied with the results. This didn't stop the French from making the Lancer standard on all French aircraft, including some of the British RFC planes serving in France near the end of the war. But the British test results were significant in that it spurred their own testing and development. Soon, the Army and Navy had engineers stationed in Suffolk, blasting away fuel tanks of different makes and designs. The result was a system known as the MID pattern, and it became standard on all two-seater aircraft starting in 1918. In essence, it was their own modified version of the Lancer model. The MID consisted of three layers of felt, three layers of Indian rubber, with soft soap between each layer, and a cage of iron gauze to resist expansion shock. With the creation of the RAF in 1918, it took over the development and testing of fuel tanks, and everything else connected with aircraft. So the program was moved from Orfordness to a recent aircraft factory, now known as the Royal Aircraft Establishment, or RAE, at Farnborough. But here, the complexities of building future military aircraft clashed with their predicted purpose. Would fighters in the next war have the sole job of destroying enemy bombers? If so, they needed speed to be able to dive within a formation, strike, and exit before the bombers' guns could be trained on them. Or, would their job be to take out the fighters escorting the bombers? In that case, the fighters needed better armor to protect them from the equally fast enemy fighters. This discussion, in a more complex form obviously, took place during the 1920s and early 1930s. And, thrown into the mix, because it had to be, was the shape of the plane and the location of the fuel tank. As improvements were made to the shape of the aircraft, air drag was reduced. But engineers now found that their new aircraft needed a heavier front, and the engine's weight was not enough. The obvious answer was to store the fuel tank in front of the pilot but behind the engine. In fact, all Spitfires before 1942 had the fuel tank All 48 gallons of its high-octane fuel placed right in front of the pilot. Whereas the Hurricane had a 25-gallon tank in each wing, but still, there remained a 28-gallon tank in front of the cockpit. As potentially dangerous as this was for the pilot, all concerns took a back seat to the designers and RAF strategists' main focus. Speed. After all, enemy bombers had to be pursued, Caught and shot down. Enemy fighters had to be caught and chased away, or outrun if a pilot found themselves in an untenable situation. So, as 1939 approached, the debate in its many forms continued, and somewhere in the mix, the development of self sealing fuel tanks was dragged along. By 1936, an entire range of tanks were available. They were all based on the Lancer principle of having a metal tank covered with a chemically treated rubber lining. However, there was a major downside in putting these safer tanks into a British fighter. If a self-sealing tank was added to a Spitfire, the tank added 40 pounds of weight, which meant a loss of 11 gallons of capacity and a 17% drop in its maximum range. For the Hurricane, it was just as bad. For the Hawker, 30 pounds would have to be added to install a safer fuel tank, which meant the same 11 gallons were lost, along with a 19% loss in its maximum range. In a time of war where inches and seconds mattered, these numbers were unacceptable. But the news was better for the bomber crews. Adding this superior tank only added about a 100 pounds to the already large machines. However, as the loss of range and speed was negligible, the tanks were to be incorporated into all new bombers being built. But for the fighters, it was strategy over safety. There was a discussion of fireproofing the tanks, but it remained only that, a discussion. Naturally, the pilots started asking questions. And in response, Wilfred Freeman, Air Member for Development and Production, responded in a letter in December of 1939 by saying that these new tanks would reduce fuel capacity and that was simply unacceptable. Besides, RAE was looking into a thin cover to make the tanks fireproof. Now, this response is not so uncaring as it sounds. First of all, everyone, including the pilots, believed that it was only a matter of time before the clever chaps at RAE developed a fireproof tank. Until then, tactics would have to be altered to help protect the pilots. After all, their job was to take out the unescorted German bombers sure to come over sometime in 1940. Even Hugh Downing... The man in charge of Fighter Command later wrote that Allied pilots had little to fear from the guns used by German bombers. But the Luftwaffe had different ideas on how to combat the Spitfires and Hurricanes.